Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Welcome to the Mark Devine Show. I'm your host, Mark Devine. Thanks so much for joining me today. Super excited that you're here. On this show, I explore what it means to be fearless through the lens of some of the most inspirational, resilient, and creative leaders. I love speaking to philosophers and psychedelic researchers and top CEOs and entrepreneurs and Navy SEALs turned author, like my guest today, Brandon Webb and his co-author, John David Mann. Brandon is a combat decorated Navy SEAL, former head instructor for the SEAL Sniper School. And John David Mann is a co-author of more than 30 books, nine New York Times and national bestsellers. So Webb and Mann have been writing together for over a decade since their first book called Red Circle. And now they're working on book three of their Chief Finn series called Blind Fear, which is just released. Super stoked to have you here, Brandon Webb and John David Mann. I'd love to kind of get a a brief like bio background. You know, I know folks who've read your books have that access, but you know, most of my uh, show may not, you know, have familiarity. So we'll start with you, Brandon. And, um, you know, I knew you were back in the teams or actually, I don't think we met until after, but I know a little bit about your background. Why don't you give us a brief bio and kind of like what inspired you get in the teams? Kind of like a summary of the red circle, <laughs> your book. So I think like many, many guys that migrate to the teams, we all come from these crazy backgrounds and life stories. And, and I think the one thing that would be common among all of us, we are no strangers to adversity. My mom is American. My dad's Canadian. We were living, I was born up in the Rocky Mountains, Canada. My dad had lost a business and had this dream with my mother to always sail around the world. So they kind of the catalyst for that was, okay, my dad declared bankruptcy, really took it hard, and they, they ended up buying this 50-foot catch in Vancouver. We sailed it down to California and you know, saved some money. And I lived on the boat for five years. No, no television, just books, and played a lot of Dungeons and Dragons. Did you spend a lot of time off the boat? Like, uh, you know, I imagine you were in and out and yeah. exploring places. My front yard was the Pacific Ocean, so I, I learned to surf at 11 in uh, South Jetty in Ventura. It's like a really heavy, heavy beach break and wedge peak off the jetty. Became a, a waterman. And my, my mom said, hey, this scuba diving boat called the Dive Boat Peace wants a young kid to work summers and help fill scuba tanks and help divers offer their gear. And the owner said that him or the captain will certify you to scuba dive. So I, I was you know, working on this really crappy job at the boat store, cleaning toilets and mopping up. Because my dad was like, you need to get a job. So. Everybody should clean toilets at some point in their life, by the way. I know, right. It's a character <laughs> building exercise, right? So I get this job and it was a dream job. And I learned how to scuba dive. In this boat was a private boat. We had a hot tub, private chef. We would take scuba divers out to Channel Islands and dive these incredible spots all over the, the different islands off the coast of California. But I remember being 13 as my first season on the boat and the captain, Mike, wakes me up at 2 a.m. We're off Tyler Bight, what's the northernmost island, San Miguel Island. 
was a sea lion rookery and what eats sea lions is gray white sharks. Like it was very sharky water. And Mike, Captain Mike wakes me up at two in the morning. And he's like, Hey, Webb, get your suit on. You got it. The anchor's stuck. We need to go down and, and get it unstuck. And, and I'd done that in the daylight because it's faster to send a diver down. The weather picked up. We had to move the boat to calmer water. So anyway, I'm, I'm all this stuff's going through my head. Like, wait, man, it's sharks down there. It's nighttime. I was like, this is kind of crazy. And I just was like scared shitless. And it was one of those moments where I'm like, I guess I just got to suck it up. And then, you know, I, I went and did the dive. And as oftentimes as we learn, the story in our head is much worse than the actual physical activity. So I did it. And that, that job was a dream job for me. I, I learned so much. I had great mentors because a lot of my friends in that kind of harbor, surfer, skateboard scene, including my best friend, just fell off of you know the planet just when it got into drugs and, and, and all sorts of bad stuff. So the dive boat really saved me. Fast forward, we'd, we'd done a, a cruise to Mexico. I was homeschooled for a year on our sailboat. We came back. I got this job in the dive boat. Now my dad, a few years later, he's like, hey, I don't want to be the guy talking about sailing to New Zealand that never does. So he's like, we're going to do it. And I was 15 at the time. By this time, I was making really good money on the boat. I was trading my lobster at a local sushi restaurant for food credit. I had a really good life. And I didn't want to go on this trip. The last thing I wanted to do, I wanted to get my driver's license and do whatever whatever 16-year-old boys do, chase girls and hang out with their buddies. But I, I went, we made it, we sailed all down to Baja, Mexico, mainland, all the way down to Acapulco. And Acapulco is a is kind of a hopping off point to the South Pacific because the trade winds and it's it's kind of a single reach on the sailboat. And so without going into details, lo- lost my virginity in Acapulco on my 16th <laughs> You don't need to go into details for that. Um, yeah, yeah. We sailed to uh, Nuka Hiva. Um, I think Hiva Oa, I think Hiva Oa, then Nuka Hiva. But we made landfall in the South Pacific, 30-day passage. And my dad and I, we started really arguing over seamanship because I had known from working on the boat that the bottom composition of the South Pacific, very different than the sand and, and kind of muddy bottom of the off the coast of California, Mexico. I said, we need to change the anchor to the Bruce anchor because the the CQR anchor, which is made for mud and sand, is going to drag. And he's like, whatever. First night we drag anchor. And of course, what do I do? Diplomatically do as a 16 year old kid with a chip on my shoulder. I was like, I fucking told you so, you know, (laughs) and my dad and I were just like butting heads. So this continued on till we made it to Pape de Tahiti. We had a big fight and we had a family meeting and my dad says, look, you're super independent. I know you didn't want to be here. Maybe it's best that you you get off the boat. And so we had this discussion, found a catamaran and a family, a couple with a young baby that really needed help sailing to Hawaii. I grabbed the backpack and a few hundred dollars. I called, this is before cell phones, I had to get on the landline, called Bill, my my old boss and the owner of the boat, I said, Bill, can I come live on the boat and work? He's like, yeah. I said, I finished my junior year early. He's like, yeah, come on back. No problem. So I sailed, you know, my mom was crying, sister crying. My dad was not crying. That's pretty cool. Like 16, you just literally get on a boat with this random family (laughs) and sail from, from Tahiti to Hawaii. That's awesome. Yeah. It was an adventure. We're just like, and it was so much faster than our catch. I remember we, we averaged probably 12 knots. And sailing, that's pretty fast. And so, yeah, I made it to Hilo. And, and look, I, 
I'm not gonna lie. I think I cried myself to sleep the first three nights, like really scared, like what the hell did I just do? But then you just kind of like pull up your socks and get on with it and made it to Hilo, flew back to California. I'm curious, do you still stay in touch with that family, Brandon? I didn't stay in touch and I would love to get back in touch. I'm really shocked because the boat's name is Shiloh and I I talk about it in the Red Circle because usually a lot of people reach out from your past, um, but I, I would love to to see how they're doing. But anyway, I, I came back, started working on the boat. And really, I think what happened, I had some good mentors on the boat. And, and I could see my friends who were kind of growing up to be teenagers were really getting into hardcore drugs, crystal meth. And, and I was just like, I knew I need to get out of this environment. I'd always wanted to be a pilot, but I read a book Rogue Warrior, one of the guys on the scuba diving boat gave me Rogue Warrior. That's Dick Marcinko's book, yeah. Dick Marcinko's book. And I realized that I don't have the academics to go into the academy on the pilot path, but I can do this. I can go to BUDS. And so I just really started training and focusing on becoming a SEAL. And when I turned 18, I joined the Navy. As you know, back then, you couldn't get a direct pipeline into BUDS training. You had to take a job. And most recruiters don't really understand that especially back then, the path to SEAL training. I went to MEPS and I think Bakersfield. The job guy said, hey, you'll, with your diving experience, you'd be a great a rescue swimmer, guaranteed. We'll promote you to E4 right away after A school, and you'll be in shape to go to SEAL training. What I didn't realize was that it was an undermanned job, just like the SEALs. Hard to get out of once you're in it. Yeah. Yeah. It was really hard to get out of because I, I passed the PT test and boot camp, and they told me, look, you can't. You're You're in a undermanned job. You got to go to your squadron and then, and then reapply. So anyway, I did that. I, I, it, and it was, maybe I needed it because it did mature me. And I had some really good leadership lessons. I had some really good bosses and some really bad bosses, which I think sometimes you learn more from the bad ones than you do the good. But yeah, I was at HS6 in San Diego. And I remember the first deployment on the Lincoln, which actually is a good tie in here to John and I in the series that we're writing together. This was right when they were integrating women on the Abraham Lincoln. It's a massive aircraft carrier, six, I think almost 6,000 people on the ship. And 10% of the crew is now women. And we had a really bad captain. He didn't talk to the crew. He never came over to the 1MC. The Lincoln had, the, I think, the worst accident in the fleet. We had an underway replenishment collision. We lost a plane in the water. And then we had a sexual predator on the boat. He molested, I think, six or seven women, and they never caught him. And so the idea stuck with me years later that what if this was a serial killer and that that was the premise for john and i's book one and steel fear you know so i was at hs6 i did two deployments i eventually my second package got approved to buds the squadron didn't want to let me go i was too qualified the first time and i just made myself such a pain in the ass the second time they're like okay get out of here (laughs) and uh, i had a really bad chief and actually him and i went head to head and he's finally like okay i need to get you out of here so i classed up at 215 yeah, I think 226 started, 23 of us finished six-ish months later. Went to SEAL Team 3. My alma mater. Oh, yeah. I love SEAL Team 3. And it's funny because so many characters came out of that command, right? Chris Kyle included. We've got a really interesting alma mater. But I was fortunate enough. I had an amazing SEAL platoon. I had Dan Goulart and, and um, Tommy Barker as my kind of chief LPO mentors. And had an amazing first platoon. Like, I feel like these guys really took the new guys under the wing. We deployed to you know, the Middle East. That's when the coal happened. We were, we were on the coal right after it was bombed in Yemen. Kind of a, a wake-up call. Then came back from that deployment. And, you know, I had a young family. I, I had 
a wife that who was eight months pregnant, these reenlistment bonuses, if you could get them tax-free, you could save, I think, $10,000. And the ops officer, Kevin, at the time said, look, I'll reenlist you tax-free, but you got to join this platoon, Echo platoon. And I was just like, oh, I don't want to go to Echo because every that was the platoon at the command that was, everybody knew that was fucked up. That was the, the misfit boy platoon. <laughs> yeah, they disbanded it. As sometimes they do, right? It was just too, they failed. I think they failed their uh, ORE exam, which is an operational readiness exam. And so Kevin's like, we're rebuilding. We need some experience. So I, I did it. And like the first month we were in doing training and I'm looking at these guys. They didn't even know how to fast rope. And I'm like, what did I get myself into? And then 9-11 happened. And I deployed to war with these guys. Uh, but we had, to be fair, we had an amazing chief, Chris Dye, and we had an, uh, an incredible platoon commander, which Chris Cassidy, I'm sure, I'm sure you know. Oh, yeah. Chris is amazing. He went on to be an astronaut. Yeah. Yeah, Chris, I think he's running the astronaut program at NASA now. But Chris was an amazing leader. And I deployed to Afghanistan. My son was born while I was gone, Hunter. You know, I, I think about Afghanistan a lot in the sense, like, how come I don't have a lot of the issues that I know a lot of other teammates have, and I think, and veterans for that matter. But I think it's because when I first went to Afghanistan, we had a purpose. Like, you know, you read Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, it's purpose is big. It's a big part of, you know, resiliency and a lifetime of resiliency is having some purpose. The purpose was destroy the terror training camps, put the Taliban out of power and try and kill Osama bin Laden. And, and we did the first two things very quickly and probably should have left Afghanistan because it turned into kind of a mess. But I had a good deployment. You know, I got to put my skills to use. I, I was proud of my deployment. You want to get in that arena and test yourself. We ended up having a really good platoon and uh, deployment, did a lot of good work, came back and was a sniper instructor for trade ed. I was in a sniper cell. And then uh, a guy, Bob, and another master chief from SEAL Team 6 had joined up to re- revamped the sniper program and it recruited me to be part of the core cadre. And then I went down there and gave up my, my cushy buds orders to go be a sniper instructor. Bob's like, Hey, I'm, I'm out of here. So I'm going to, I'm going to make sure you make chief. Cause I just got capped E6. So I was the number one promoted at trade at, and then he's like, I'm going to set you up to make chief. And he put me in charge as a sniper course manager, which is an E8 senior chief billet. And I was an E6, like a newly capped E6. And so it's a lot of responsibility, but very rewarding work. By the end of that three years, I was completely burned out. We had transitioned the course from a mix of, you know, San Diego and Camp Pendleton to this army base in Indiana. And I was just traveling so much. And, it, you know, I was just kept missing these events with my kids. And, and, it, and I just hit burnout. And at that point, I was like, you know what? I just need a break. Even if I just get out for a year, I can always come back. And then... You know, I started to think about what am I going to do next? And, you know, I got involved with Glenn and some of what he was doing for a little bit. But then, you know, I, I had this crazy idea to do Win Zero, which, uh, right. which I invested in. <laughs> yeah. Win Zero, just for the listeners, it was a bit, you had an idea to, to build a big dynamic military law enforcement training center in the desert off of San Diego. And you had this beautiful piece of property. And, yeah. Um, it would have been great were it not for the government yeah. <laughs> of California. Yeah, no, it, it was, it's sad, you know, and it's humbling. I mean, you, you know this as an entrepreneur, Mark. It's tough when you, you know, you put your life savings and take other people's money and it just all goes to hell. And then my wife was like, look, I love you, but I don't want to be married to you anymore. And, <laughs> nope. we were, and now, now I'm divorced, you know, and, 
And, uh, you went from hero to zero, right? You went from <laughs> oh, yeah. being a Navy SEAL, running the sniper program, now failed business right and failed bottom. marriage. Right to the bottom. Wow. That would drive a lot of people to drink right there. Yeah. And, and I actually, the again, this was one of the moments I can remember sitting in my Toyota truck on the cliffs of La Jolla, thinking just that. I'm like, I was on top of the world. Now I've lost everything. You know, fuck my life. The time where I spent with the cadre of the sniper program, we got to work with these incredible consultants. And one of them was Lanny Basham. I'm sure you're familiar with Lanny's work. He, he was kind of one of the pioneers of, of mental management in the Olympics. And Lanny became a mentor and a really close friend of mine and really was instrumental in, in teaching me this principles of mental management, which I taught to the sniper students and, and saw firsthand how powerful visualization positive self-talk, positive instruction versus negative instruction could be. And so I said, okay, I got to reframe this. I got to go, okay, life sucks right now, but at least I have a good relationship with my, my ex. We care about the kids, a good relation with their family. I've learned a ton, you know, from a guy that couldn't even read a P&L balance sheet. Now I understand how, how to read financial statements. I understand how to borrow money through the SBA. I'll be okay. And so I just kind of had to reframe it. And then I ended up taking a job for uh, L3. They, the headhunter recruited me. So for two years, I kind of built back my savings and it, it was right. And I started to get into writing. And that's when I had this idea for the uh, Red Circle. And I was running a blog for military.com and had the concept for SoftRep. SoftRep, for those who don't understand it, it's a military acronym for Special Operations Forces Report, right? The soft report that would come back from the field to HQ. They're different, you know, summaries of what happened during the day, good, bad, and the ugly. Yeah. That was the idea behind that. Exactly. And it started out as a culture blog, just interviewing guys that have been to war. And then we started to break news. And then I really, you know, for a couple of years, to be honest, I really struggled with how do I do this? I've never been trained to, to run a newsroom. Now guys in the community are bringing their dirty laundry to me. And I, I really struggled. I Thankfully, I knew a guy, Jeff, that was the editor-in-chief of the Union Tribune, you know, I had some other guys to reach out. Even you, I talked to about a few things. I tried to do something similar with NavySeals.com. It was difficult to do the newsy stuff, and I got in trouble actually for the SEALs. Oh, yeah. It's super <laughs> hard. Right? You didn't hear, you know, you can't do anything right. So I had to learn how to, to run SoftRep as a news site, which, you know, I feel like we're in a pretty good place today. I, I still run that business. So fast forward, I, you know, I ended up uh, moving to New York and Puerto Rico. I started an e-commerce business, which kind of took off, but grew too fast. Like it grew it to zero to almost 15 million in 20 months on Facebook ads. But it started to come off the rails because as you know, like managing inventory and supply chain, totally different from running a mm -hmm. media company. Was that the Crate Club? Yeah. Yeah. So sold that. And it, it was a humbling experience. I actually went back to business school. I went to, um, I applied for this program at Harvard Business School for entrepreneurs, kind of like a two-year entrepreneur program. I finished that a year ago. Just because I'm like, okay, what did I do wrong? How, how could I do this differently? Yeah, so today, yeah, I'm very proud. My kids are, are doing extremely well. I live between Portugal and New York. I write with John. I write on my own. I run SoftRep, and then I'm helping. My son started, a, he's 21. He started a, a property tech, AI property tech company that's doing really, really cool. Well. He's got one year left in school. He's, he's at St. Andrews in Scotland. Oh, my goodness. How cool is that? They're really proud of him. Uh, my daughter's at art school in London for product design. My youngest is, uh, he's a junior. They're all doing great. And I, I really am grateful that I have a, 
I have an ex-wife that we put the kids first. Yeah, that's no, that's an amazing story. Thank you for sharing that. Okay, we're going to take a short break here from the Mark Divine Show to hear a short message from one of our partners. Amazing that Christmas is already here, right around the corner. It's already time to start thinking about some cool gifts. How about some gifts that get people outside and healthy, seeing the world a little bit differently? I recommend you check out Electric Bike. Electric bikes are amazing. I love my bike. Sandy and I cruise around Encinitas with it. It's a, it's a terrific way to get some exercise, to get outside, get some sunshine, fresh air, and to see the world outside of the box of your car. With financing as low as 73 a month, you can get started today with your own electric bike. They ship it to you for free. It's fully assembled, foldable. I love that. Just fold it up, throw it in the back of your car, take it anywhere you want to go. They've got pedal assist and a super long battery life, so you can cover a ton of distance when you get off your butt and get outside on an electric bike. Check it out. Make it your go-to gift for the holiday season. Visit electricebike.com. That's L-E-C-T-R-I-C, ebikes, plural, dot com, to find the model that works best for you, like their XB Lite, which starts at just $799. Again, that's electricbikes.com. And thank you for sponsoring the Mark Divine Show, Electric Bikes. I've got something exciting to share with you today from my company, Unbeatable Mind. It's the 30-Day Unbeatable Mind Challenge. In just 30 days, you can become practically unstoppable. We've condensed the proven habits, mental exercises, and rituals that we teach to the Navy SEALs into simple, practical daily exercises. Imagine starting your day with a calm and focused mind, sharpened intuition, rock-solid discipline, a clear sense of purpose. You'll experience undeniable shifts in all areas of your life, financial growth, improved fitness, and find that true passion for life. All of this can be done with just 15 minutes a day, and you'll have the support of the vibrant Unbeatable Mind community behind you. Just head over to unbeatablechallenge.com to unlock your full potential with the 30-day Unbeatable Mind Challenge. And now back to the show. So, John, you know, what's your story? Like, how did, how did you get into writing? Like, where, you're from Massachusetts. You know, the Red Circle was the first project we did together. We started back in 2009. And when he had, first had the idea for SoftRep, we were working together back then. And we, you know, we went through his whole life on phone interviews for hours and hours and hours and hours. And that became The Red Circle, which is like a 400-page book, good doorstop. It's a good book. And uh, that kind of launched our partnership as co-writers. We've been doing it ever since. I think we got eight books out, Brandon. I had written and published a ton of books before that. I published over 30 books, but nothing remotely like Brandon's life. I had no no experience writing about the military or writing about the military life. What got you into writing to begin with? I mean, what was the impetus for that? One of the things I think Brandon and I click on is we're both fearless about reinventing ourselves, as you just heard him <laughs> talk about, obviously, sitting in his car in law and saying, oh my God, what have I done? I've been reinventing myself my whole life. I started out as a kid uh, in a musical family. My dad was a choral conductor, a musicologist, a uh, musical family. I played the cello. I was a composer. I won awards as a kid. I wasn't a prodigy by any stretch, but I was a, a really curious, really active, really passionate about what I did. When I was a, a sophomore in high school, I dropped out of school and a bunch of friends and I started our own high school because we weren't happy with our schools. So I started my own high school. You then started I went your own high school? 
<laughs> Honestly, I think that's the first time I've ever heard those words come out of anyone's mouth. <laughs> I went to it as a senior. So I went to my school in the first graduating class. We did graduate. It was it was in the preschool days back in the 70s. And in Summerhill and all that, the whole preschool movement was happening. But a lot of the kids in preschools were uh, going to school to drop out and do nothing. We wanted to drop in. We wanted to do everything. Uh, we wanted to, to have a school that would support us in learning, like about whatever we wanted to learn. The first semester, we had 50 kids in 55 classes. We were studying everything from nutrition to computer science to you know existential literature to you name it. I imagine some adults were involved in this process and some, like, how, how did this, I'm curious, just, I want to double click a little bit on that. It, yeah, it was not Lord of the Flies. No, okay. <laughs> That's what I was imagining. Hey, there's a Lord of the Flies tie into our latest book. We'll get back to that. But one of the first things we did was decided that we were kids, we were high school kids, we knew what we wanted, but we also knew that we needed a adult on board. So we started interviewing for director. And we had a committee, an interview committee, and we interviewed about a half dozen extraordinarily qualified, amazing people. Don't ask me how we did that. We just decided that we could. And we ended up hiring a guy who, had, uh, who was a novelist. He had a history in education. He was a stellar guy, amazing guy. And he joined us. Where did the money come from? At no salary. At oh, no salary. He stayed at one of our, one of our houses. Parents of one of our kids was, had a nice house with a guest room. He stayed there. For the second half of that year, he spent like six months fundraising and planning. I was the only one among us who dropped out. So it was like he and I were the team that got this school off the ground. I'd go over to his house every day and we would jam and brainstorm and he would fundraise. I would get there in the morning for breakfast at like nine o'clock and he already had a shopping bag full of typed, sealed, stamped letters that he'd typed and created, you know, since he'd been up that morning, just writing to people to fundraise. So, I mean, without him, it would never have happened. Without me, it never would have happened. We, so we built this thing the first semester, the first year. That year, we sent kids off to Yale. To Harvard. My girlfriend went to Yale from our school. Yeah, we had kids graduate and go you know, to all, all kinds of schools across the map, state schools and, and you name it. Is this school still alive? No, it ran for a decade. I went back the year after graduating and taught there for a year. Then I went on to other things, and it ran for a good 10 years. And it finally, I, I, don't, I wasn't around when it quit, so, but it was, it was a great run while it lasted. And then from there, I bounced through a lot of careers. I got involved in nutrition. I got involved in teaching. I got involved. I was a taxi driver for a while. I, was, I taught in a ghetto. But I always seemed to be the guy who was editing the newsletter or writing the column for the paper or whatever. It was always like the writing guy. So I spent about a decade editing as an editor for business journals and leadership journals and things like that. And I ended up ghostwriting and co-writing and co-authoring and then eventually, you know, teaming up with people like Brandon to write books. It was Brandon, though, that got me to into fiction because all my stuff, all my books were about business and leadership and personal development. And I wrote memoirs for people. I wrote memoirs for political people and corporate people. I mean, it seems like most of your work has been co-author or editor. Have you written your own without another author involved? Yeah, I have. The great majority has been, you're right, has been co-authorships, uh, teaming up partnerships, but I've done some writing myself and I'm working on a book, uh, a novel now myself, and I, I really enjoy it. But I also really enjoy working with somebody else. It's a little bit like being a film actor and stepping into somebody else's skin. Although in the case of a book like our thrillers that we'll talk about, I'm not writing somebody else's story like a ghostwriter. We're, we're collaborating on fiction. So it's like we just throw both of ourselves in there. So that's a real collaboration in the truest sense. 
But yeah, I do love writing solo. I love writing with. So I love I love it all. So with Blind Fear, what's the process? I imagine Brandon, you're the you get bring all the military creative juice. How do you guys pull this off? Well, I should start by saying the first book. I mean, Brandon alluded to this, but the first book was Steel Fear, Steel Fear, okay. which was an idea that Brandon brought to me back in 2009 when we were just starting to work on Red Circle. He said, "Would you ever be interested in writing a novel with me?" And that was. Steel Fear from the Abraham Lincoln, the sexual predator. What if he was a serial killer? That became the premise for our first novel. So, Mark, the idea of writing a novel to me seemed like the idea of going through buds. <laughs> I mean, it seemed like yeah. climbing a mountain. Yeah, no, I could sound, it does sound, I mean, it's such a different writing style, right? I mean, you got to have the arc of the story and all the character development. Yeah, and it's a big mother. I mean, your 400 page novel, how do you keep track of all the plot lines? And I couldn't comprehend it, but. But he got me out on the end of the diving board, and we did that. And it, we were nominated for a Barry Award. It got a lot of accolades. You know, Lee Child wrote our cover quote. The novel really caught, and it did really well, and people loved it. How did you educate yourself on how to write a novel versus a narrative? As a high school dropout, although I did graduate from my own high school, <laughs> I, had, I have extensive education. I had studied with a screenwriter in Hollywood, a really amazing guy who broke down the whole writing process, and I learned a ton from him, but that's screenplays. I have a, a, another friend who's a mystery writer out of UK. I studied a bunch of his stuff, and I read like a demon. I read it just a ton of, of thrillers, and I've always had a talent for breaking down processes and figuring out how they work and replicating them. I don't have formal training, but I just did that. The manuscript for Steel Fear, I sent to a story consultant. I paid her 1200 bucks to rip me a new one, and she did. It was awesome. <laughs> and um, when we sold the manuscript for Steel Fear to Bantam, they wanted a two-book deal right off the bat. So we were committed to Cold Fear, book two, from the work before Steel Fear ever came out. Steel Fear was set on an aircraft carrier. And you know this environment, but most human beings don't have a clue. It's like an alien, foreign, strange, you know what a wild environment it is. The steel tube the size of the Empire State Building, you know, with almost 6,000 souls on board for six months at sea. It's like, it's a whole city. It's a whole country in there. So that kind of set the model for us. We figured every book we did, we would find some really fascinating environment and make it come to life for the reader. Cold Fear was in Iceland. And Blind Fear is in, in uh, Puerto Rico in the middle of a hurricane. Oh, nice. Leveraging your knowledge of Puerto Rico. We optioned it for one of the streamers, Whip Studios. So hopefully when the strike ends, we'll get a... It ended. Well, the writer, now the actor strike has to end. But the writer is the important part for us because we got to get that thing written. You optioned Blind Fear or the whole series? The whole. Yeah, they are. They wanted it all. Oh, that's good. Our main character, Finn, is similar to like a Jason Bourne, kind of, kind of deeply flawed and figuring his way in the world. He's a SEAL chief in the series, right? Like you were? Yeah. Is he based on you, Brandon, or is he someone else? No, definitely a, a mix, I think. Maybe a little, little bit of me in there. But one of the things that John and I felt that was important to do is break down all the stereotypes because he's a scrawny guy. Well, we, you know, it's funny. We see that. People always look at me and say, yeah, you look like a SEAL. And I was like, you don't have any idea what you just said. Yeah, yeah. People look at me as like, I don't get it. You're a SEAL. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And for the record, I think, Mark's name was nickname was Terminator and in, in, in the SEAL Cyborg. Team. Cyborg. I get it. <laughs> so we wanted to deal with a lot of that kind of stereotypical stuff and also like expose the military for the kind of beautiful, wonderful place it is as far as inclusion and meritocracy. So our characters are super diverse, like strong women, 
in leadership roles. And, and yeah, I think we did a, a really good job, at, but it's a mix for sure, John would say. And, and you know, I started fumbling my way through the manuscript and then I got John somehow to agree to help me out. And then, you know, I didn't have Finn. John created Finn, their last name. So I give him full credit for that. So how has the process evolved? So that first one, you tried to write it and you said, holy shit, this is hard work. So you brought John in and I'm sure John probably did a lot of the heavy lifting after that. <laughs> here, here, take this. Here, take hey, so this. the process is actually really kind of fascinating because we start out by just brainstorming back and forth, mostly on email, but we get on the phone sometimes, brainstorm about kind of the big ideas of the story. There's typically a plot twist somewhere near the end, which you know comes first. A lot of these big ideas come from Brandon's experience in the military and also in software because you know some of this stuff is stuff he's covered as a journalist. We has through some sort of setup, story setup, obviously location, and then we kind of kick me off and running. You know, you're right. As you said before, Brandon supplies the military background. The moment I bump into something where I don't, I don't know how this works, you know, I'm over to Brandon. And not all military. Like, for example, in Blind Fear, Finn, this character who's the SEAL chief, water is kind of his superpower. Working in and around the water under it. Yeah, yeah. he's in his element. He, he loves being in the water and it nourishes and it feeds his character. And we figured in Blind Fear, book three, we're going to really finally get him in the water. Mm -hmm. Although not under the water, that's still in our future. But there are a couple of scenes where he takes a little fishing boat out on the sound between Vieques and Puerto Rico in increasingly bad weather and ultimately in a hurricane. It's, it's crazy. And I have no idea what that experience would be like, but Brandon does. Yeah, I was going to say, it's, I'm glad you told your story, Brandon, because that sounds a lot like, that sounds a lot like you at, at 18 or something. Yeah. You know, I feel like a painter. Well, I got a canvas here that's blank, and I got this palette of all these colors, and this and the palette is Brandon's life. I just like, mm, I think we'll use a little bit of this, a little bit of that, because I know his life so well, or at least a lot of it so well, after all these years of writing together, that I can kind of say, oh, I remember when Brandon did this, or this happened, and then I'll, I'll connect with him, and he'll give me more detail, and he'll spell it out, or he'll write a draft and kick it over my way. That's cool. So, you've, you know, the two of you together have kind of developed a brand, right? And so I, I noticed you even have a website that is the two of your names. Right. right? Yeah. Web and Man. Web and Man. Oh, that's really interesting. So when you sell a book, that's the, you know, that's what's selling the books. You know, the oomph of the first three, like I can see this. Yeah. I mean, what's your plans? Do you have any vision for what's next? I mean, how far can this go? The TV thing is the real, is the real um, wild card for us, I think. It's going to help. Like it's going to really help us kind of build. Kind of like Jack Carr's terminal list really put him on the map. Yeah, no. And and. I mean, he's done a great job and I love Terminalist for many reasons. That's kind of like we're in that same boat. And what I learned was a lot of your nonfiction fans don't read fiction and they don't care. John and I didn't bring a lot of fans over to the fiction as much as I thought would make a difference. But and then as a kind of the business of fiction, you have to get a few books out there. You have to build fan base. I think each mass market paperback release gets us a bigger fan base because it's a barrier to entry. People can pick it up at Walmart. So I think once Blind Fear hits mass market paperback, I think, what, next next year, right, John, next spring? Yeah. It's amazing. Every time mass market paperback comes out, the sales numbers to date literally double in a week or two. Mm -hmm. it's, it's like it does, wow. Brennan says, you know, it's low point of entry, Walmart and so on. So yeah. Right. And then the, we get the series on, you know, in, in production and on air. And, and I think John and I could, we, we have a like a born type series we could write indefinitely similar to what's happening now. Like the Clancy series is ongoing. The the Born series is ongoing. So I, I think we have something. I think we have a really good character. The fans that 
we do have are really invested. So I'm excited about it. And John and I wrote a book called The Killing School, which is about my my time as this sniper course manager. And through my business school experience, one of my classmates owns a video game company and got acquired by a conglomerate. And she's like, hey, I want to make the sniper video game. And so we're a year into that project right now. And that's for Xbox, PlayStation. So as these things kind of pop, it, I think it will elevate John and I's profile a little bit more. And publishing also, it's it's a weird environment today. I have a friend, senior editor, and he's like, we're buying books that we know aren't going to sell just to check the kind of cultural box, which which I guess some of that stuff needs to happen. But you know, it's, it's kind of crazy. It's I wrote an article about it on my blog a few weeks ago, just it's a strange place to be kind of single white male right now. <laughs> you know, we're, we're making our way in the world. Yeah. Now self-publishing obviously has made everyone an author. So it's really hard to, to stand above the fray. So I'm curious, like I know Brandon, you're kind of like me, you've got your business, you got multiple sources of income. So you're probably not relying on your royalties to live off of. You know, how does that work for you, uh, John? I mean, you got, you got a lot of um, books out there. I mean, like, what is it for someone who's like thinking, hey, I want to be a full-time author. How hard is that? A full-time author as in it supports your life? Yeah. That's yeah. like murderously difficult. Yeah, the odds are very low. Very difficult. <laughs> that's what I thought. <laughs> but um, I've written a lot of books and some of them were commercially not hugely successful, but some have been very successful. And so that kind of carries the weight, which is great. There are a lot of people who ask that question. I put together, I got a one year teaching program now where I'm coaching and, and teaching aspiring writers how to become an author because there's so much advice out there. And a lot of it is not necessarily bad, but it's not really very practical, you know? And some of it's downright bad and just totally sucks. Part of what I'm up to right now is, is, um, is mentoring new authors because there's a lot of people who have a great story to tell, but. You're right. Self-publishing has made everybody an author, but unfortunately, it hasn't made everybody a good or successful author. <laughs> no, there's the, the barrier to entry is so low. There's a lot of crap. You guys are doing great work. I really, really love it. Is there anything else you, you, you know that we didn't cover? You love to share. I want to also learn where we, you know, where you want people to find more info. I just want to say people should read the books. <laughs> They're really fun. Of course, yeah. We haven't said much about the books themselves, but I want to say that you know the character Finn is central to the whole deal. Each one of the books is a self-contained mystery and adventure, and yeah, you can read them, uh, you know, self-contained that way. But also, Finn the character is evolving a ton because he starts out with gigantic holes in his memory. He has no last name because is it because he doesn't know his last name or because he doesn't remember it or be. He's got a lot of holes in his makeup that he's starting to fill in piece by piece. So by the end of book three, he's a different person than by the beginning of book one, and he's still got a long way to go. But it's a hell of an adventure. Yeah. I can't wait to see the Netflix. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. You got to keep me posted on that, Brandon, and we'll promote it too. But webandman.com for sure. You can find everything we've done done there. And then all of our, I think all of our personal social is on there as well, right, John? Yep. It's all there. So that's W-E-B-B and M-A-N-N.com. Right. So two Bs and two Ns. That's it. I love this type of writing. If I had more time, I would, I would alternate between, you know, a thriller and, and something, you know, more along the lines of like what I'm trying to learn. But um, that's great stuff. And uh, congratulations. So look forward to, to many more. All right. Thanks again for your time, guys, today. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, let's stay in touch. Hoo ya. Thanks, Mark. Good to catch up, Mark. Take care. Well, that was a fascinating discussion with Brandon and John. Really cool to hear about how they write and the inspiration for, for and all the trials and tribulation that go with writing. And just to get the uh, the background on, on Brandon, what a fascinating life he had and 
and John as well. So thank you very much, uh, guys, for your time. Really, really great to uh, speak with you and to share your ideas with our audience. The episode is up at markdevine.com. Our show notes are up at markdevine.com. The video will be on our YouTube channel. You can reach out to me on Twitter or X at markdevine and on Instagram or Facebook at realmarkdevine or my LinkedIn profile. Check it out and uh, please share the show. Also, if you're not on my newsletter distribution list, check out markdivine.com to subscribe for Divine Inspiration, which comes out every Tuesday, where I have my blog and what I'm writing about. I have a book I'm reading. I've got the show notes for the week's podcast. I've got a weekly practice for you and other tidbits that come across my desk that I think you'd find interesting. So check it out. Go to markdivine.com, subscribe, and also share that with your friends. Thanks to my great team of Catherine Divine, Jeff Haskell, and Jason Sanderson, who helped produce the podcast and find incredible guests like these two to come to you every week and to produce a newsletter. Ratings and reviews are very helpful, so if you haven't done so, please consider taking the time to rate and review The Mark Divine Show wherever you listen. It really helps it stay at the top of the rankings and to continue our journey together. And finally, as usual, thanks so much for being part of the change you want to see in the world. It all starts with ourselves, developing that courageous, positive mindset, and then sharing that forward with our family and teams. So that's the most important work. Don't worry about all the crazy shit that's going on in the world. That's uh, always going to be there, but you don't need it to let it affect you. So be the change you want to see in the world, but let's do that at scale. Till next time, it's your host, Mark Devine. Booyah. <laughs>